Hey, Emma. Remember in university when we used to try and be super sophisticated and get dressed up and have big boozy dinner parties in our flat twice a week? I've never missed those days more than now. Do you mean back when you had a bottle a day Dijon habit? Yes, I remember. We would stumble through recipes, most of which involved copious amounts of aubergine. We thought we were aubergineuses. And we would sit for hours at that big, amazing farm table on Barony Street under our drying laundry. So romantic. When she says Dijon, she means mustard, by the way, just to clarify for everyone. Hard. What about today? If you could invite anyone to dinner without limiting yourself to the usual constraints of distance, degrees of separation, or I guess that person being dead, who would it be? Hello, and welcome to Fanfare, a fortnightly culture review podcast by Emma Knight and Monica Ainley DLV. I'm Monica, a fashion journalist based in Paris. And I'm Emma, a writer and co-founder of Greenhouse in Toronto. Emma and I have always enjoyed geeking out together, and usually find we're fangirling around the same material. So, in every episode of this, our new podcast, we'll talk about what's inspiring or troubling us. Whatever's getting us talking. For our inaugural conversation, we're going to do something a little bit fanciful and host an imaginary dinner party for someone whose work has inspired us a great deal over the years. Some context. Emma and I have been friends since we were two. Which is why you might notice her calling me a variety of names, including Mon, Mocha, or Mokes. Monikers got a lot of monikers, what can we say? And it's also why we have a few of the same long-standing obsessions, like sweater vests, early fall, freshly sharpened pencils, Parker Posey, and the one movie that contains all of these things, You've Got Mail. Excellent segue. Great segue. So, <laughs> so it really wasn't all that hard to decide whose spirit to conjure for our imaginary seance dinner party. You may even have heard of her. Her name is Nora Ephron. Mon, how did you first discover the work of Nora Ephron? I have to say, um, my mom bought a VHS of You've Got Mail because she either had seen it in cinema and loved it or heard it was great. And back in those days, you would actually buy VHSs and test them out at home. And I remember watching it with her and thinking, this is the best thing I've ever seen. Now, I don't mean to fact check you right off the bat, but I'm wondering if by buy it, you mean never return it to Blockbuster. That is probably what I mean. We had a bit of a record with Blockbuster in the Ainley household. It's so shameful. We're probably the reason that they went under other than, you know, the internet. I remember that. I think I remember that Blockbuster branded VHS copy of You've Got Mail. And it was really frayed. The cover was all ripped and there was just this gorgeous green image of um, Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks in the park when they'd discovered the identities of their one true love. And through this video cassette, you, tender young Monica, discovered modern romance. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that there are probably a lot of people of our generation who would have come across this kind of quirky, fun but actually often quite deep take on romance through the work of Nora Ephron, be it her films, well, probably through her films, although I discovered later that there was a great deal to read from her as well, to my delight. Mm. Well, in case you haven't seen You've Got Mail, it's an epistolary romance between the Meg Ryan character and the Tom Hanks character. They 
are chatting on AOL. So it was the early days of talking to strangers on the internet and they didn't know who the other was, but they became close friends and developed an intimate relationship beyond that which they were able to have with other people in their lives. They're both already in relationships at the start of the movie, so there's a lot of hijinks. There are a lot of hijinks, it's true. Weird side note that I was just thinking about, and this is, I'm just gonna like leave it here because he's become somewhat of a controversial figure. But Dave Chappelle is in You've Got Mail. That is correct. It's true. And he, he's really good in it. He is really, really good at it. So in case our synopsis didn't intrigue you, know that you have that to look forward to as well. You've Got Mail was probably... Well, actually, so for you, You've Got Mail was the first entry point into the world of Nora Ephron. For me, I think it was when Harry met Sally which I watched for the first time well before I understood half the jokes, including the orgasm in the diner. I was like, I don't even think I knew what was happening in that scene when I first watched it. But those two films are, and then Sleepless in Seattle, those would be probably the three most classic Nora Ephron films. But before she started writing and then directing, she was a journalist, essayist, and she wrote... A novel, her first, I mean, as far as I know, Mook, right, her first literary sensation was Heartburn, which was a fictionalized account of her divorce from the Watergate reporter Carl Bernstein, who fell in love with somebody else when she was seven months pregnant with their second child. For shame. <laughs> and he left her and she was, you know, her heart was burned. But she also had heartburn because she was pregnant. And Monica and I both recently, while seven months pregnant, not at the same time, that would have been cool, but close enough, revisited this work. And it is riotously funny. But also chilling. And chilling. But she wrote it funny, which was one of her many talents. She took something completely devastating that really happened and fictionalized it and turned it into a deeply humorous account of modern love gone awry. And that's one of the things we love her for most is the her talent for turning unfortunate situations that really literally happened to her into brilliantly witty fiction. We're going to get more into that later. I feel like, Emma, we need to take a step back and explain how our imaginary dinner party concept works. Before I tell you how imaginary dinner parties work, I should let you know that I just Googled Nora Ephron first book and it was not Heartburn. I lied to you. No, I don't think it was. It was her amazing collection of essays called Wallflower at the Orgy, which is the best title ever. I actually currently have on my phone in, I don't know if you ever use Apple Books, but when I'm putting my toddler to sleep, I lie there. Do you read her Wallflower at the Orgy? I do, because you can take it in snippets. And the most recent essay I read was an incredible one about Ayn Rand and how she completely misunderstood The Fountainhead the first time she read it because she was too young. And I had the exact same experience, like completely. It was like, oh, this is like a really steamy story about an orange-haired architect, like missed the point of the entire philosophy that she, you know, that would that would later be the undoing of America. So also, I assume that that's some sort of metaphor if you're reading it to Frida. I mean, I know that I've <laughs> metaphorically speaking sometimes felt like a wallflower at an orgy, but I don't know if I've ever, I've never, I can assure you, I've never actually been a wallflower at an orgy. No, you're an active participant. I mean, when you're at an orgy, orgy, you're involved. <laughs> when you go to the trouble of attending an orgy, Mon, I know this about you. You're going to be all in. No, uh, no comment. Nora Ephron 
is not necessarily coming to dinner in body, but she is coming in spirit. So in case you've never been to an imaginary dinner party, this is how this one's going to go. I'm going to plan the menu. Monica will plan the wardrobe. And then we shall close our eyes and think of Nora. And no one will feel like they're a wallflower or at an orgy. And if we concentrate really hard, a fellow superfan who does not know that we're going to be referring to this as an orgy, and we'll see how she feels about it, might even make an appearance. She's a very well-known British journalist, published author, and mega podcaster. And her first name starts with a P, and her second name starts with an S. And most importantly, she is as obsessed with Nora Ephron as we are. Great taste. It had to be you. It had to be you. Thank you for that mood music. Now let's plan the menu. It's a bit intimidating because Nora was a great cook and she was known for throwing incredible dinner parties. She even had some dinner party rules that she swore by. One was to always have dinner parties at a round table because she said the conversation flows better. Mokes, what shape is your table? Well, this is what I'm worrying about. Mine is rectangular. It's a very large rectangular dining room table. And honestly, I've never given it a second thought. I'm quite thrown about all this. Another rule, and this is going to be hard for you, Mokes, in Paris, is don't kiss guests on both cheeks. She says it's bony. Well, I mean, it's less hard in the era of COVID, but what I will say is... I think that that doesn't count if you're in Europe because it's not phony if you're European. Another rule was the rule of fours. So she loved this person, Lee Bailey, who wrote cookbooks. And the rule of fours is that you should always have four things. So three things isn't interesting enough. You can't just have like a meat, a starch and a veg. You need to have a piece de résistance. And then she said, put the cookbook down. So obviously this is very offensive to me. Uh, She says, there is an awful lot of mumbo jumbo in cookbooks that completely terrifies you. Cookbook writers are always insisting that you must serve everything right away and that you can't possibly reheat things, et cetera, et cetera. I'm sure that was true of the cookbook writers at the time. You know, her whole thing was you need to be calm and relaxed in the kitchen. You need to be happy with what you're making. And I believe that 100%. So the obvious only exception to this rule is how to eat with one hand, Emma's new cookbook. Plug! Which is very relaxed. (laughs) She cast herself as a cookbook writer in Heartburn, so she couldn't have found them all to be mumbo-jumbo spouters. Okay, so we know she's a potato fan. She talks a lot about mashed potatoes in Heartburn and elsewhere, and I think she deserves a lot of caviar, not just as a garnish. What's that? What are you doing? What is that? What are you doing? You're taking all the caviar? That caviar is a garnish. So the fourth thing that I want to make is the first thing I'm going to serve. And it's these incredible potatoes called pomme dauphine. And they are crispy and golden on the outside and fluffy on the inside, like mini bites of mashed potato heaven wrapped in a shoe pastry and fried. And then we're going to serve them with creme fraiche and caviar. So I think the first thing that we should offer to her is that when she walks in. That can be our starter. I'm sold. Here to explain the recipe is a friend of mine, the chef at and owner of an incredible restaurant in Toronto called Dreyfus and another called Bernhardt's, Zachary Colomir. Hi, Emma and Monica. So in order to make pomme dauphine, you're going to need pata choux or choux paste, and you're going to need Yukon gold potatoes. Uh, what you want to do is you want to make your pata choux, and then once it's still warm, 
you add your mashed Yukon Golds and you whip it on high speed so that all of the steam kind of evaporates in the, in the mixer. And then you basically have pomme dauphine dough. You get a little pot of, of oil hot, about 375 degrees, and you drop in like little pushes of the spoon off into there. You could serve it with anything like we do with caviar and sour cream, but you can do chicken livers or a pesto or, or something like super savory or even sweet things are nice with it. Apple jam, rhubarb. Yeah, good luck pomme dauphining. Yummy. Thank you, Zach. Dreams are nothing more than wishes and a wish is just a dream you wish to come true. Okay, so for dinner dinner, I'm thinking we've got to make some kind of make-ahead, unpretentious comfort food that makes the house smell really, really good. She does talk about how, when she was in New York learning how to be an adult, she cooked her way through Julia Child's recipes. And we all watched her do this in Julia and Julia. Uh, and I think as an homage to that and as a nod to her love for Julia Child, we should make bouffe bourguignon. That is one of my favorite dishes, and I think it fits perfectly with the mood. Okay, great. So I'm going to make it the day before because that will give the flavors a chance to get to know each other and will have the added benefit of giving the illusion on game day that I am a chill and relaxed person. And all we'll have to do when she arrives is make sure that it's really nice and hot and plate it in shallow bowls on top of a bed of yummy, buttery egg noodles. And then afterwards, because we're in Europe and things, we shall have a deep green salad with some kind of spicy leaf in there to give it a little kick and some blanched green beans and some walnuts. And we will put our recipes and links to recipes in the show notes. Can we talk about the vinaigrette quickly? Because one of my favorite parts of heartburn is the vinaigrette. When she says, I'd gotten to the point where I simply could not make a bad vinaigrette. This was not exactly the stuff of drama. Even now, I cannot believe mom would want to risk losing that vinaigrette. You just don't bump into vinaigrettes that good. So she's extremely pleased with her vinaigrette. And Mon, I think it'll appeal to your tastes because it contains two tablespoons of grey poupon mustard, as well as two tablespoons of a good red wine vinegar and six tablespoons of olive oil. And she says, mix the mustard and vinegar together. Then while whisking continuously, add the oil slowly to the mustard and vinegar mixture. The vinaigrette will become thick and creamy. Add to salad. Just remember, two, two, six, mustard, vinegar, olive oil. Congratulations. Now you've got that ratio memorized for life. I'm just thinking while I'm making this salad, you're probably getting a little peckish. Nora hasn't come yet. Why don't I make you a nice slice of mustard toast to uh, tide you over? So you laugh about that, but I actually eat mustard toast all the time, especially when pregnant. And I thought that it was a really particular personality quirk until I spoke to my dad about it. No, he saw me eating mustard on bread and he was like, oh, you do that too. And it turns out that when my dad was a child, they used to find him in the middle of the night under the dining room table eating mustard sandwiches okay so now what's for dessert yes a very tangy dessert is on deck she loves pies so i think we should serve the spirit of nora efron a key lime pie for dessert i'm also really curious to know what nora efron is wearing And for that matter, what are we wearing? Because I'm just sitting here in my skivvies waiting for you to dress me, Monica. 
Okay, well, <laughs> allow me. I think the way that Parker Posey's character dresses in You've Got Mail, aka Patricia Makes Coffee Nervous, is how Nora herself actually dressed, as far as I can gather. Um, so the sort of editor, black turtlenecks, very New Yorker with the slim kind of Armani style slacks that you would see around a lot in the 90s. But it's a very timeless look. A kind of sleek to the shoulder, blunt haircut, which Patricia has in You've Got Mail, Tom Hanks's girlfriend. Cashmere overcoat, gotta have some great gloves in the winter. I mean, it's sort of a bunch of variations of the all black and navy kind of look, which you really can't go wrong with. There's also the Kathleen Kelly, Meg Ryan's character in You've Got Mail interpretation, which is very tempting because who doesn't love a good turtleneck or sweater vest? I know you love a sweater vest. Actually, everything this character wears is amazingly relevant today. Sweater vests with crisp white shirts underneath, check. Oxfords and tights, check. Menswear-inspired khakis belted at the waist, worn with a cute cardi, check. Believe it or not, I went back and realized I've probably mood-boarded every single one of Kathleen Kelly's looks from the runway this past year. But wait... We're not done because the Efron fashion options are truly endless. A faceless guy rips off your clothes and that's the sex fantasy you've been having since you were 12. Exactly the same. Well, sometimes I varied it a little. Which part? What I'm wearing. Let's talk about how we would channel the Meg Ryan looking when Harry met Sally. It's definitely the more collegiate take on the Meg Nora vibe. But then we were just saying earlier on how much we're yearning for our college dinner parties, were we not, Emma? And this came out in 1989. So we're also looking at a more late 80s Nora Ephron interpretation, which is really just fun. It's a lot of sneakers, chunky knits under blazers where you kind of have to wrestle them under there, but they look quite cool once they're there. Much bigger hair, you know, bigger, freer hair. And I know that both you and I have quite long hair. So this could really work for us. And who could forget the khaki safari shorts and knee socks scene? Emma, I feel like you have the legs to pull this off. Oh my gosh, that's such a high compliment. Well, given that we wore knee socks together for a dozen years in high school, <laughs> I think it would be nice to have a little homage to those years. Um, and also 1989, Certainly. you know, we're we're late 80s babies. So this is... I believe our inheritance to some, our fashion inheritance. Just want to add one thing to your look, Emma, to round things out, which would be a sleepless in Seattle style low ponytail. I think it would really suit you. And as you're doing the cooking, quite practical as well. Mm, I like that. Hygienic. Okay. So you are going to be Parker Posey. Patricia makes coffee nervous. And I am going to be Sally with the sleepless in Seattle low ponytail check. What is she wearing? She's wearing something more akin to what you're wearing, right? Probably, but we'll just have to see when she arrives. Things have come to a pretty pass. Our romance is growing flat. For you like this and the other, while I go for this and that. Mocha, what is your opening line for Nora Ephron? Hi, can I offer you a bouquet of freshly sharpened pencils? <laughs> <laughs> no, we're going to have one of those on the table as the centerpiece. 
No, but seriously, we can't mess this up because she's the kind of person where first impressions really count. What are you going to say when she arrives at the door? Hello, it's Mr. Nasty. Perfect. <laughs> She'll love that. What subjects should we avoid at all costs? So I think we should steer clear of birthing discussions. Okay, so is there anything else we need to avoid? I don't think we should talk about hamsters. Why? <laughs> I'll let Nora explain why. My first husband was so neurotic, he kept hamsters. They all had cute names, like Arnold and Shirley. I felt really sad when Arnold died because Charlie was devoted to Arnold and made up a lot of hamster jokes he claimed Arnold had come up with, mostly having to do with chopped lettuce. Also, and I'm sorry to tell you this, Charlie often talked in a high squeaky voice that was meant to be Arnold's. And I'm even sorrier to tell you <laughs> that I often replied in a high squeaky voice that was meant to be Shirley's. I mean, what are you supposed to do with a first husband like that? I'll tell you what, divorce him. Hold on a minute. Has somebody else arrived? Ooh. Who could that be? Oh my word. It's British journalist, author, and podcaster Pandora Sykes. And best of all, she's a devoted Nora Ephron fan too. Pandora, we've never been happier to see you. Welcome. And we want to start right in by asking you, because we've just been discussing this, at what point in your life did you first discover Nora Ephron? I think I probably discovered her work much before I discovered Nora Ephron if that makes sense. I don't think I knew what movies she'd done until well into my 20s. And still now, I, I think it depends if you're a movie person or more of a books person. And my movie knowledge is not good. I'd say I'm more of a books person. So when I think of Nora Ephron, I actually think of her books before I think of her movies. So it would probably be in my 20s when I can't remember if Heartburn or I Feel Bad About My Neck was the first... I can't remember which I read first. Mm. Who is your favorite person she writes about and why? My favorite character, I'm going to go offbeat because I feel like everyone would just say Meg Ryan. So I'm going to say Jonah. Can you remember who Jonah is? The little boy in yeah. Sleepless in Seattle. <laughs> yes. Oh, I love him. Just because I think it's quite something to try and set up your dad and probably a little unrealistic, but I love unexpected child-related storylines, except for Home Alone, that just annoys me. I go for Jonah. Can I tell you something completely crazy that you might already know? She fired the first Jonah. What? So they had hired Ooh. this kid and they loved him uh, and he was fantastic and everyone was all excited. And then they started shooting and the kid just froze up when he saw Tom Hanks. He could not act across from Tom Hanks. Uh, and Nora Ephron just fired him. <laughs> Tom Hanks was like, oh my, good God, she's fired the kid. Um, so that gives just a wee little example of her. She was a tough, a tough lady. Oh my God, that's so heartbreaking. I guess that must have been in a table read. I was just trying to think, would they have done a chemistry read? I would have thought you'd done a chemistry read between a child and a man playing the parent. You would, but also there was a bit of a kerfuffle before Sleepless in Seattle, apparently, because... So she adapted it, but it had been a, a script that was in existence for quite some time, and they were looking 
for a director and it had actually been rejected a lot and there were different actors entirely attached to it. So I don't know at what point the (laughs) Jonah character got switched. It might have been at the same, but presumably it was at the same time that Meg Ryan and uh, Tom Hanks were put on. Sun goes down on a silky day. But anyway, I guess that brings us to the point that Nora wasn't always nice. She cut people to the quick a fair amount. Do you think that it's harder, Pandora, for women to be tough and get away with it? It's so interesting because I wonder all the time what she would have been like and how her writing would have been received had she been writing now, which is 50 years later. It's a half a century. And how she, I mean, she got called a kind of pseudo-feminist then by some people, didn't she? So, you know, what would she have been called now? Would she have been seen as more of a feminist or less of a feminist? Or, you know, would she have been seen as controversial? Like, I love, she wrote a piece in 1976 for Esquire, which is probably one of my favourite things she's written, actually, about the difference between political correctness and controversy. And... She, I actually wrote down something that she said because I really liked it. Yes, I am continually fascinated at the difficulty intelligent people have in distinguishing what is controversial from what is merely offensive. I feel like she wouldn't even think of herself as difficult. She would be like, well, what do you mean by difficult? If you mean I know, I know my mind, then yes, because she's just got this real clarity around, even around parenting. I remember reading when I was writing my book and I was writing about parenting and the kind of shifting identities around parenting. I found her so comforting, if a little unrealistic, when she said that parents were merely people with children, as opposed to people who are engaged in parenting. That's how she saw being a mother. So... I don't know, is she difficult or is she just like really clear? And quite ahead of her time, and as you suggest. And her mother actually was very committed to being a working woman. And, you know, there would be sort of school theater performances and stuff. And she recalls her mother saying, well, you just have to tell them that I can't be there because your mom works, which was unheard of at the time. And I think that she... She really took that on board. I, I, it's, it's an interesting one. Apparently she had, let's say she tried on many, many assistants before she found the right one who could stay with her. I think he said that he was like 12th or something like that. <laughs> uh, and the people who are interviewed in, so her son made a documentary about her mm. called Everything is Copy. Beautiful piece. But the people who are interviewed, including Meg Ryan, talk about her as someone who was just unfailingly honest. So she was loved, but she was also feared. I think Meg Ryan was the one who said her allegiance to language was more than her allegiance to someone's feelings. <laughs> and, you know, it's interesting because there can be some temptation, I think, as a woman to make everybody else feel comfortable. As a man, too, but women in positions of power often feel the need, I think, to temper their own perhaps brilliance or, you know, they just, they need to be the one to make everybody else shine or feel that pressure anyway. And she just disregarded that. And everybody respected her so much for it. She also had an extraordinary experience that would have 
broken many of us. And I found reading it when I reread Heartburn when I was pregnant with my first child and found it absolutely agonizing to mm. read that Carl Bernstein had left her when she was seven months pregnant with her second child. I mean, that it was the situation was absolutely unbelievable. He behaved appallingly and the way she writes about it, which is so pragmatic, but utterly devastating. And then, of course, he tried to sue her and made her life miserable for 20 years because she had the audacity to write about it. So maybe, you know, I don't think that experience can be anything other than formative. Mm. But I, I, th I think that's when you get into the whole aspect of Nora's everything is copy philosophy, which we wanted to ask you about as well. Again, this came from her mother. When she was a child, you fall and cut your knee or someone would be mean to you in the playground. And of course, you go home to your mom and say, this happened and this happened. And the mother was just not, Phoebe, she was called, was just not in interested in indulging her children and she'd say to them oh that's sad well good thing everything is copy which means put it in your back pocket and it's a story that you can tell later and it'll be funny and you can write about it so I love that saying and I've taken it on board you know when trying to think about my own writing a little bit but I wonder Pandora do you think there are exceptions to this rule that everything is copy didn't she on her deathbed say Nora you're a journalist take notes or something yeah she did but then she didn't write about her own illness Nora did she no. she didn't tell anyone she was dying she'd of... never wrote about her cancer leukemia yeah not only never wrote about it she didn't tell her closest friends yeah it's 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 not uncommon that actually is it that someone that's very open in their work when they have an illness to not share that I can kind of understand why she didn't feel like that was something she wanted to make collaborative, I suppose, if you mm. if you think about writing as collaborative. I personally don't... I think everything is useful as a writer. I don't think everything is copy. I love reading first-person stuff and I love reading books that, you know, are about a really difficult period in someone's life and they've, they've built something lyrical and momentous out of it and I feel incredibly grateful to them for writing that but I think sometimes women are encouraged to kind of mine themselves for experience in the way men aren't or men can do it like Nausgaard which is extraordinarily personal you know there's like 400 Nausgaard books and they aren't then kind of judged for that or seen through that indulgent lens forever I think for women, I personally have much more boundaries around that. Everything definitely isn't copy for me. And I always am nervous for someone that is. So I don't know, I'm on the fence about that one. Maybe it's different now as well, because everything is copy on the internet rather than it being mm. fish and chip paper or whatever. Exactly. Mm. One thing that I really love in her son Jacob's documentary is, well, first of all, he interviews Mike Nichols and Mike Nichols, who became a great friend of hers, said not very many people survive being publicly cuckolded, but Nora did. And he said she cried for six months and then she wrote it funny. And in writing it funny, she won and betrayed women all over the world, knew it and cheered. And I just love that because, you know, it's hard to win when your husband has fallen in love with not only cheated on you, with, but fallen in love with somebody else when you're seven months pregnant with your second child. For sure. But that goes back to the banana peel, right? Which is, you know, exactly. part of her mother's everything is copy mantra, which is if you slip on a banana peel. 
and you fall and you hurt yourself, then that's just a sad story that makes you look stupid. But if you then go and tell the story about how you stupidly slipped on a banana peel, you can make it really funny. It's about controlling the narrative. Yeah, and you're reclaiming that. Mm. And as the daughter of two writers who became alcoholics, she was very interested in control, it seems. You know, controlling her own life was of the utmost importance to her. She's really interesting on that, though, on her parents being alcoholics. I don't think she puts much truck by the nature-nurture thing. Mm -hmm. It's true. Strangely, she and Bernstein saw the same pair of shrinks. Did you guys come across this this married couple who wrote a bunch of early self-help books were the therapists to both parties in the divorce? And I think Nora (laughs) Ephron and a lot of other creatives... I mean, imagine them talking about you, trading notes yeah. when they, well, he said she did this. Oh, she said he did. Like, what? <laughs> I know. So but that comes weird. up in Heartburn, doesn't it? I mean, the shrink is so incredible. So these shrinks were called Mildred Newman and Bernard Berkowitz. And they were therapists to a bunch of New York celebrities, especially creative people. And they wrote all of these books about kind of taking control of your life and early self-help books that Nora, from my understanding, found quite helpful. In terms of everything being copy, one of the most beautiful things that I think her son realizes in his doc is that everything is not copy in the end. As we've talked about with her illness, like that is something that she doesn't want to give up. So she, it's the end of her life. She's holding it close. It's hers to own. It was not material. The things that you want to keep are not copy, but copy is what you want or what you're ready to give away. Interesting. Okay, I like that. That's a, yeah, like a boundaried. Yeah, I like that too. That's a good working mantra. Pandora, we're going to have a little fashion moment. You're a very stylish lady, and I'm wondering what you've worn to dinner in honor of Nora Ephron. I'm a bit torn on this because do you make like Nora Ephron and do skinny black trousers, Mm -hmm. black polo neck, great blazer, or does it just look like you're, (laughs) do you know what I mean? A bit creepy. Do you go the other way and turn up in some like floral 80s Princess Diana concoction? Yeah, I've been wondering about that too. I do love a dark turtleneck and I really wanted to wear that. And there are some characters but um, I do love, <laughs> I do love those all black Efron-esque looks. But I think, but Pandora, you are a great one for pulling off colors and patterns. You always have been. I think you should, I think you should own that kind of 80s look. I think Nora would appreciate it. I love a black polo neck, but I actually don't think I'd wear one to dinner because I'd get too hot. Yes. If I'm drinking red wine, which shows that I'm just not like a true Nora Because if you're a true Nora, which is a type of person, you wouldn't worry about getting out of your leather trousers like Ross from Friends. You wouldn't (laughs) worry about getting really red and kind of sweaty baby curls if you wore a black polo neck to dinner. All those things. You wouldn't get changed. You'd probably wear the same in the day as you would in the Mm. evening. And I've never been that cool kind of person. I I have to refresh. Same. I'm, I'm with you right So do now. people like that, I've always wondered, do they have like an internal cooling system? <laughs> they just aren't hot people, I think. If you are a hot person, you've got to get changed. 
Because they're not flustered. They're not hot and bothered. They're unflappable. Yes, maybe maybe it's a whole it's a whole personality type. Was Nora flappable? No. No, it terrified people. Right, okay, so it's a whole personality type. And she's obviously very slim as well, so she probably got less hot. <laughs> That's a good point. It probably helps that we're serving her a frozen dessert with this delicious key lime pie. Mm, yes. <laughs> well done, Emma. Compliments to the chef. <laughs> she's just glad it's not landing in her face. Pandora, do you think that that really happened? Did she pie her husband? To jog your memory, in Heartburn, at the end, when she is having that unbelievably awkward dinner party, her last dinner party with her husband, Mark, at some friend's house, and they've gone over to their house for dinner, and she's brought a key lime pie. And throughout the dinner, he drives her so completely mad that when dessert time comes, she goes into the kitchen, gets the pie, brings it into the dining room, and throws it in his face. God, I'd completely forgotten that bit. Me too. <laughs> Do I think it's true? I don't know. I don't know. I think it's impossible to tell, even if an author says they're ruthlessly honest. If she hadn't pied him, don't you think he'd have said so? Did he say the book wasn't true or just that he couldn't believe she was writing it? It was more, he was very nervous about the adaptation. So I know that he put in the divorce papers that he did to be portrayed in a certain way. So always as a loving father, you know, there were certain stipulations around the way the Jack Nicholson character had to be portrayed in the film. And she agreed to that. It's also quite interesting seeing, because now I think we're so much more sympathetic to the mother that now than we were then. So we read that and just think, oh, how completely hideous. She's allowed to write about whatever she wants. But in the 80s, she was accused of child abuse for writing it. Hmm. And they were like a celeb couple. I mean, it was so out of the ordinary. I mean, men wrote, as she says at one point, as she says in an interview I listened to, you know, men are allowed to write about their marriages falling apart, but women are just expected to curl up in a ball and move to Connecticut if their <laughs> husbands leave them. And she was sort of the first. I like to... Connecticut as Coventry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And she was kind of the first to challenge that norm. And the first of many, it must be said. I mean, I think today it's a whole different ballgame. But... Her son, Jacob, judging by the documentary, turned out very well. So there's that. Yes, he does seem to have turned out very well. If you could ask Nora one burning question, what would it be? I would like her to do, this is cheating a bit, a quick fire round. So I just want to get her opinion on loads of small things now that I just would, I, I can't quite predict where she'd fallen. So I'd probably ask her about lots and lots of like pop culture moments or spats, what she'd be interested in, to make, in making into a film now, who would be her favorite writer. Yeah, it's true. We really are missing her in this era. It would have been so great to get her commentary on, <laughs> even on the COVID era. I mean, is there an equivalent? No. <laughs> Do you think there's an equivalent? Could it be like Michaela Cole or Phoebe Waller-Bridge or... Phoebe Waller-Bridge is perhaps an eventuality of the Nora Ephron type character, yes. No, but she doesn't write... It, she's, it was so autobiographical, Nora's work, wasn't it? Mm. Although only Heartburn, actually. What else was... Oh, and, um, and Crazy... Crazy Salad, which had the weirdest cover ever. It looks like Mr. Blobby's on the front. Anyway, okay, so we've got our reading set out for us. 
Do you think that men and women can actually be friends or not? Yes. I think that would be ridiculous in 2021 if we were still saying no to that question. I agree. I don't think, I mean, but then I always try and think of who my male friends are. And I do have male friends, but they're nowhere near as close as my female friends. Do you have a lot of male friends? I have some male best friends, yes, but I agree. I do have more female. Emma? I think in When Harry Met Sally, she's not necessarily saying that they can't be friends, period so much as that the sex question has to be addressed at some point. Like, am I attracted to you? No. Are you attracted to me? No. Proceed. (laughs) Proceed. That's probably right. You just have to cross that bridge at some point, which is, you know, a little disturbing too. And maybe not true. My closest male friend is your husband, Mokes, and I think it helps that he's your husband. (laughs) Well, you'd think, but I don't know if Nora would agree with that. She did say of Mike Nichols, who was her very close friend that she wished he were her husband and I think she was still married when she said it to one of the three uh the middle one I think Carl or no the first one the hamster one I think she was married (laughs) to him when she first met Mike Nichols and the fantasy that her husband could in fact be Mike Nichols and not her first husband uh was part of what let's call it a catalyst maybe for her separation keeping him on his toes keeping them all on their toes well on that note Pandora, thank you so much for joining us. Would you like some uh, a bit more pie for the road? Yes, please. Can you make me a silver swan out of tin foil? Yes, I'm working on it right now. <laughs> there you go. We haven't even offered you coffee and a digestif. Here, have some coffee and a digestif. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> Yay. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for coming. You're the best. Thank you for having me. That's our dinner party. Subscribe to Fanfare on Apple Podcasts and give us a rating and a review. We would also love to hear from you by email, fanfarefanmail at gmail.com. Check out the show notes for recipes, links, our social handles, and a huge thank you to our producer, Joel Grove. See you in two weeks. Bye.